Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am in Megan and Etienne Hardray's backyard, just above the study. And today is the first, really kind of the second day of the pre-conclave events. So last night we had over at Derek Fulmer's house, we had, uh, geez, had probably at least 50 people, wouldn't you say? At least. Yeah, six, maybe 60, 70 people. And uh, today is day two of the pre-events, and we are in the afternoon out in Megan and Etienne Hardray's backyard, and I am with Stan Wallace from Overland Park, Kansas, who's in town from Overland Park, Kansas. Stan, welcome. Thanks. It's so good to be here. Appreciate the invitation to come on the show. I enjoyed listening to it and wondering if I ever might be able to get on the show as a guest. So you've made my day. So we're recording this during the conclave and we are holding it because you have a book coming out, which we'll be talking about later before we'll get to your story. But first question, what you smoking? Well, I'm smoking an Asylum 13. That's a kind of a boutique stick uh, manufacturer. I, I met the uh, the president, actually, the founder, a while ago really? in, a, in a Texas Hold'em uh, tournament. And yeah. uh, I got to know him pretty well. And uh, just really, it's a nice full-bodied stick. And uh, just really, yeah. it, it's mellow, but it's full. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And I have an Arturo Fuente that was gifted to me when I was salmon fishing a couple weekends ago up in Vancouver Island with a buddy of mine, Jeff Hash, who uh, is an attorney in Sacramento. And he was up there nice. with us salmon fishing. And I'm smoking this one right now, saving some of my other sticks in my humidor for the upcoming podcasts. Mm-hmm. So Stan, nice. where'd you grow up? Grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Family, parents, what they do, siblings? Uh, that's a much more complicated answer than you can probably imagine. Really? Um, uh, adopted, divorced, stepsisters, stepbrothers. So I honestly kind of yeah. lost track of how many steps and halves. And then I just found my birth mother four years ago and got another four half sisters and brothers and so it's uh, it's really complicated and i grew up till i was 12 with one uh, adopted sister so uh that's the closest i got to really uh, a sibling but yeah it's it's just it came from a pretty broken family talk about that describe that what do you mean by broken how so well on a number of levels i'll just say that uh my adoptive father was not that interested in being a husband or a father, but it looked good mm. on his resume. Mm. And so he's a school superintendent and kind of yeah. needed the perfect family. So it was a lot of show, but uh, very little substance. And then uh, they ended up divorcing when uh, I was six, went through a messy custody battle. I was involved actually in some te- you know testifying stuff I don't think you do anymore, yeah. but uh, it was just one of those seasons that were really hard for everybody and um he got custody because it looked good and had to kind of play the game which i wasn't very good at playing the game of a happy part of the new family and uh it it uh it, it culminated by me being able to live with my mother and my stepfather starting seventh grade uh in the other end of the state 
because uh, he had moved us up to Northeast Ohio. And so back to Cincy and then went through middle school, high school there, took my stepfather's name, Wallace, uh, sort of really? started, did a total reset. Really? And uh, so, uh, yeah, pretty monumental kind of season that, that has shaped me for good and ill in many ways. But I do see that, uh, and Nietzsche said, said it best, uh, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And so there are some ways God's redeemed that. And uh, ministry opportunities I've had in the lives of others have been due to some of the things I experienced and kind of working through those things. Tell me about your stepfather. You, you took his name. I Was did. that a choice you oh, made? Oh, absolutely. I assume because you chose that he was a better influence Great and guy. more of a fatherly figure than your father was. Oh, absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. In many, many ways. Talk about that. What did he do so, and uh, what kind of a man? Is, is he still around? Or? No, he passed uh, three years ago now uh, at 91, so had a nice full life. Yeah, yeah. But he, um, he wanted to be involved in my life, uh, which was not true of my adopted father, Stan Lair. Yeah. And he uh, was just, uh, it was just there. He's just present. I mean, it wasn't anything magical. It wasn't anything that, you know, it was just, he was just there. He showed up at my game which, and which we is... threw football in the backyard and he, he taught me his craft, which was woodworking. Oh. And, you know, just, we just did stuff together where I was with him when he did his stuff, which was fabulous. And it helped me as I've now been a father of four children to think about, well, how, how can I just be present? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've sometimes succeeded, sometimes not, but, but that's, uh, that's 90% of the game is just showing up. Yeah. So what kind of kid were you growing up into sports more of a, you know, studious troublemaker, probably a troublemaker really because, uh, home life was hell and I sort of lashed out at any authority figure because, uh, authorities were, identified for me like my dad who was not you know somebody who had my best in mind so i just tended to project that on others in authority and uh was usually in trouble for something yeah yeah so did a better home life with your stepfather kind of shift that for you in through junior high and high school in a lot of ways yeah i do still have a problem with authority to be honest. I mean, it's part of sin nature, but part of it is the, the upbringing. So I struggle with that. It's probably my greatest weakness. But having said that, yeah, there was more groundedness and more stability. Uh, I, I knew that he had my back. And so the, there wasn't this constant expectation to be perfect and to be, you know, a, a certain way that should, that, reflected on him favorably, but I could really be myself and ask my questions and do my things. And, and he was okay with that actually, which was kind of nice. Yeah. Like, you know, wow, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> and any activities when you were a kid? High school? Uh, yeah, I played soccer and I swam. Yeah. And then, uh, I, uh, actually got involved in, uh, in photography. It was, well, I went to a big high school. We had, gosh, I don't know, four or five thousand students uh, maybe um so as a head photographer of our yearbook and our paper so uh actually my first leadership role which is what i've spent my life doing was then and kind of realized yeah this is this is something that uh i enjoy i think for the right reasons yeah just bringing people together who enjoy the same thing and kind of 
coordinating, you know, photo shoots going out, you're going to go shoot this, you're going to shoot this and, and, and making sure we had the, the shots we needed for the, the, the paper edition as a weekly edition or had some shots for the yearbook of the important events and just kind of what turned out to be a big part of my, my ministry career of, of bringing folks together who shared a vision, but needed a way to work together to see that fulfilled. Very cool. So what'd you do after high school? So, um, I went up the road, uh, to Miami of Ohio, public university in Ohio. They call it a, a public Ivy. It's a, a, a very, uh, very good school that I was surprised I got into after my performance in high school, but thanks be to God, I, I did because it was a great four years. It's just Northwest of Cincinnati, a little farming community. So it's, it's out and away, but you're close to the city. But, uh, I had come to faith 15 months prior to heading off to school, to, to college. And um, so uh, one of the things that uh, I did right away was got involved in one of the campus ministries. And that was life-saving for me because I was just such a young believer and had no background prior to that, was an atheist, self-declared, until my conversion. And so I just didn't have any categories or understanding of really anything. So getting involved with a community of fellow students who were in, in almost every case more mature than I was spiritually uh, was just so helpful and really grew, uh, grew like a weed during those years, developed ministry skills. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So talk about four that years. coming to faith experience what in what kind, you didn't grow up in a christian home then mm -mm. any sort of faith whatsoever oh yeah so my mom uh again who I was with uh in the early years till 6 and then 12 on she had grown up in a very strict fundamentalist christian home and she went off to college same university miami and uh she'd lost her faith the christian faith and embraced sort of a new agey philosophy theology before new age was in. She was reading the transcendentalists, Hemingway, Thoreau, Emerson, and embraced that faith commitment, which it really is, of God as an impersonal force that permeates everything that we tap into uh, through crystals and through other things. And then she actually mixed that with occult practices. So I can remember coming home, I think sophomore year, and there's a seance going on in my living room. And uh, I was like, yeah, I don't have anything to do with any of this. So I was, I was an atheist by choice because I had never been exposed to the truth. And then when I saw people trying to practice uh, religion, it was just weird. And I, I, I knew, and it was God's grace, you know, give me, I think, insight that you know, this is not the right direction. <laughs> so no, no background in, in that. And the little bit I was exposed to, I skewed. And then um, a high school ministry started in my high school and a bunch of students came to faith. And it was shocking to me because they were the students who I wouldn't think would need a crutch like this. Mm -hmm. They were student body presidents, some of the football stars, some other people that I really thought they kind of got it together. What, what, what are they doing? I don't get this. So it, it, it started to mess with my categories. And then one of my uh, very good friends who was Jewish 
became a Christian. Her hmm. name was Gail. And, uh, and I was like, what, why does somebody who already has a religion do this? I mean, do you collect these things like baseball cards? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> so, and she was very evangelistic. She wanted me to convert to this yeah. new faith of hers. And so she would share the gospel and I'd bring an objection. And, uh, and, and she did the right thing, which most people don't do. So it could have been an objection like, well, there is no God or, you know, how do you know this Bible's true or whatever. And she would say, first of all, she did two things that were right. First, she would say, that's a good question. I don't think I can give you an adequate answer. In other words, she, she was honest to admit that, yeah, I, I'm not going to try to, you know. Well, sunshine up your butt. Exactly. I, I'm just going to own it. That I'm new in this too. I got to think that through. But the second thing she did was she actually followed through. She did her homework. Yeah. And she'd come back to me in man, a week, two weeks and say, hey, I did some research and here's what I found. And it was, for me, wow, there's actually answers to these questions. Because I thought I was, I, you know, we were done. I thought I'd send her away and she'd never bother me again. But yeah. she'd come back with legit answers. Well, I'd have another one ready. And this literally went on for a year. What grade? Uh, this was spring of sophomore to spring of junior year. So I'm 16 to 17. Yeah. So that's happening. So I'm getting my questions answered. At the same time, I also had written her off because she was somebody who always was trying something new and uh, she'd be at it for six months or so. And then it didn't work. She was on to something else. But uh, I was basically like, okay, if I can last six months here, she's going to be off this Christianity kick and onto something else. Yeah. <laughs> well, six months came and went and she wasn't onto something else. In fact, I was seeing these changes in her life that none of these other things she tried had helped at all. Yeah. But I was seeing a, a literally, I was seeing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and, and so on and so forth. And so again, another category disruption. So there's something real going on here. It's changing her in ways that I'd like to be changed. And she's answering the questions I got that keep me from even considering this. And then I had two idols in my life that were kind of the, the, the two final things that were keeping me from even considering. And those were gone within uh, about eight weeks. What were they? I was a big drinker, known yeah. as a big drinker in high school. Yeah. Uh, overdid it one night, got, got alcohol poisoning, Ooh. almost died actually. Ooh. Ooh. And uh, I literally couldn't smell my alcohol of choice, which is Southern Comfort, without being sick. Yeah. So I drinking wasn't, it was off the table. <laughs> so that was gone. I wasn't anymore that guy. And, uh, I was in a pretty serious relationship with a girl. I thought this is our future. We talked about religion. Yeah. That's, that's okay. If you don't get too carried away, but we're not into that stuff. And so, she, you know, she was kind of my idol and that ended within, you know, another month or so. So all those things culminated that spring of my junior year and, uh, finally got to the point where I sat Gail down. And I said, um, I need to know what you've been trying to tell me for a year. I'm ready. Mm. And she, in a very simple way, shared the gospel, nothing fancy, nothing eloquent, but, uh, the spirit of God was there, convicted my heart and the trusted Christ that night. It was April 21st, 1980, 1030 mm. at night. Mm. And, uh, not everybody has this experience. I don't expect people should. I'm not in any way saying they should, uh, at all, but 
I had a very deep sense of God's presence that moment. I had an existential experience, mm. uh, a, a very deep spiritual experience. I went to bed, got up, didn't tell anybody, went to school the next day, and people started coming up to me and saying, what happened to you? And I said, I, I don't know what you mean, what happened. You look different in a good way. You don't look as angry. I said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any categories yet, but I said, I, I do know the last night I decided Jesus is who he claimed to be. And I decided to follow him. For two weeks that, that happened until the word got, got out that the atheist, you know, in the school, who was always against all the Christians that believed this stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that went on for a, a couple weeks and, uh, and uh, started to, you know, see God work in my life in pretty, for me, dramatic ways because I needed it because I was pretty broken in mm. more ways than I even to this day know, I'm sure. Yeah. You know? So when you went off to college, what'd you study? What was college like? Well, so this ministry, and I don't want to name the ministry, I don't want to drag him under the bus, um, but this ministry I was involved with as a high school student, also at a college division, Okay. And it was the best of times and the worst of times. How so? The best of times in that, as I mentioned earlier, I'm in community with the, this vibrant group of Christians who love the Lord and want to reach out. And it, there was momentum. There was excitement. There was, it was great. Yeah. The problem was that um, the theology was sort of sacred secular dichotomy so that the important things as a Christian are those yeah those spiritual quote unquote activities, like going to Bible study, being involved in prayer, doing evangelism, discipling students. And then the other stuff like study, they do as much. And I literally heard this said, do as much as you can to stay here, keep your GPA above, you know, where they kick you out. And so you can spend all your stuff on the important stuff, the spiritual stuff. So I came in as a political science major, Yeah. but six months in, I went to our director the staff worker. And I said, and again, I bought this theology because I had no background. I'd say, well, this is what Christians think. Okay. I'm yeah. I follow Jesus. This is, I guess yeah. what I should say or believe. And so I, um, I, I realized again, the, the narrative was then after college, you go into ministry, you know, usually on staff with our organization, or if not into the pastor or overseas missionary or something. So I went to the campus uh, leader and I said, so what should I study to, to be on staff with this organization. And he gave me the worst possible advice. He said, well, what you would do if you're a campus minister is you will be speaking, you know, uh, leading Bible studies, doing evangelistic outreaches. So you should either study education or communication to be able to communicate well. So I said, all right. I switched into uh, secondary ed communication, which combined them. Well, it, it turned out fast forward about six, seven years. Now I'm in my second, third year in student ministry and I was a great communicator, but I had nothing to say. Oh yeah. Talk about that. Why, why do you think? Because, well, you were, because you were being pushed over in this direction that really wasn't your, what you were really wired for and called for or what? Well, the, the ministry didn't have a focus on learning biblical truth. So yeah. it wasn't, it was much more of an activist ministry where you're trained to get out and do things, share the gospel, disciple others, nothing. It was great, but there wasn't much 
content in the ministry and in the, the major, it was a major that wasn't focused on a certain area of content, but it was focused on how do you communicate, right? How do you, how do you educate? I was a modern day sophist. So the sophists were a group of people in Socrates day that he engaged a lot. And a lot of the, what are called platonic dialogues, the dialogues that Plato wrote, which were really conversations that Socrates quote unquote had some of them were probably written with a lot of Plato's thoughts, <laughs> yeah. but they're all called the Socratic dialogues where Socrates going up to these sophists and having conversations because the sophists said, look, there's no truth. They're ancient postmodernists. There's no such thing as truth. So the game is being really persuasive to the highest bidder. So since there's no truth to a matter, if you want to convince somebody of your view, you hire me, I'll teach you to be a great communicator and you'll win the day, whether it's politically or whatever. And that's all there is to it. Well, that's, that's sophistry. And I was a great sophist. I could communicate stuff really well, but I really didn't have much to say. And, uh, and, and it really is the reason for me, I decided I needed to go back to school and learn a few things to actually minister to students or others because people need more than just great communicators. What was the tipping point in that, that you felt you needed to go do this? Was there, was there a crucible moment? There was. <laughs> there was. This ministry was by and large people who'd come out of undergrad degrees and had not had seminary training. So they had a program in the summer where you were required uh, three of your first five summers, including your first summer, to take these intensive seminary classes. And they had a curriculum where you take either two or four week classes mm -hmm. in just basic areas. So mm -hmm. Old Testament, New Testament, intro to apologetics, church history, what have you, right? And they'd bring in professors to teach in these areas that were really top-notch folks. So you got exposed to, I had Howard Hendricks for Doctrine of the Christian Life and John Hanna for Church History and J.P. Moreland for Apologetics. I mean, it was, it was great. Well, I had um, been banging my head against the wall doing outreaches to students on what we would call felt need topics, how to get better grades, healthy dating relationships, uh, whatever it was, right? And sort of try to get the gospel fit in there at the end that didn't, didn't really fit, but we tried to shoehorn it in somehow. Yeah. And uh, getting nowhere. We'd have a few Christian students show up, no Christians to show up to the first place. And just, you know, it, it was not really effective in any way, shape or form. And then I had this class in apologetics with J.P. Moreland. And I realized these are the questions students are asking that I, you know, I ask at my high school level and had some things to say, but the college level, you know, the game gets upped. And I didn't have answers for him. And so conversations would end. And I wasn't able to speak on this in these outreaches that students would have come to. And uh, so I had this class with him that summer and we read some hard, hard books. I had no idea what most of what he was saying, but I caught a little bit of it. And I went back to campus and it just so happened that uh, we were in the small group I was leading, studying through Acts that year. And we got to Acts 19, Mars Hill. And one of the students stops me and says, why don't we do that? Oh, do what? What do you mean? Just stand up and present the gospel as true and then defend it. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> he said, why don't we do that? 
sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so the next thing I know, there's posters up advertising this open forum where I and they, we together are going to do this open Q&A on whether Christianity is true. And we, going into it, looking back, had no idea what we were doing. But by God's grace, the questions students ask were, in a few cases, things that one of us, me or one of these students, had thought a little bit about. And in every case, we said, what I had seen modeled to me by Gail, we said, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to answer your question adequately, but let me do some research and get back to you on that. Is that okay? Students were totally open to that, just like I was. So students started to come to faith and the Christian students became more grounded in their faith because they were getting a handle on more of the reasons that this is actually true. Not just what I happen to believe because of my upbringing or because, you know, whatever. So I actually kept taking summer classes uh, from JP and some others and getting more understanding and yeah. finally realized, you know, I, I, I actually it was JP who said to me, because I'd go in early to his classes, try to catch him before class and ask him questions, because I'm starting from his ground zero just about. I had more than a carpenter, you know, the Josh McDowell kind of level stuff. Yeah. But I had nothing at a college level or above. So, and I'd stay afterwards and I'd ask him all kinds of questions and I didn't get what he was saying. Finally, he just turned to me and said, look, you've got to get this more than piecemeal. Come study with me. And I said, I can't study with you. I can't, you know, the stuff you write, it's so far beyond me. I just, I'm, I'm lost. He said, um, you know, if you come study with me, I guarantee you, if you work hard, you'll, you'll, you'll do all right. And I said, I said two things. I said, first of all, I, th- I think you're full of it. Cause you don't, so. you don't know me. So I think you're wrong. <laughs> I think I can work really hard and not get this. But secondly, I'm going to trust you because he actually told me the same story with he and his mentor, Dallas Willard, that he went to study under Dallas and didn't think he could do it. And Dallas <laughs> gave him encouragement and sure enough, he did all right. How important looking back now at this point in your life was that moment to where he believed in you when you didn't believe oh, in yourself? It was huge. It was huge. Yeah, because... I mean, that's kind of my story not being believed in. Uh, and I'd had the camp, one of the campus pastors or ministers really believe in me. That was very important. But him at his stature, believing in me, made all the difference in the world. Huh. It was life changing. And, and his invitation was also not only come study under me for the content, but I'll disciple you and mentor you and teach you what I've learned from Dallas. This was before Dallas wrote some of the things that are out now, like divine conspiracy and spirit of the disciplines, you know, and teaches some things I've kind of learned from him that are really helpful in spiritual formation. So it was the whole package. Like I get to go study and hang out with this guy and learn all this stuff. What did that I'm look like? What did, what did that look like practically? Like how often were you meeting? How long were you meeting? Well, um, well, first of all, it, because, because I guarantee you there, there are listeners who are like, Ooh, I know someone young in my life that I could do this for. But they've never seen it modeled. Yeah, and and so from a, yeah. how did it show up in your life with JP? So, um, and I th- I think every situation is going to be different. Yes. So for any yeah. listener, yeah. You, you can't map this no on a one to one correlation. But in this situation, it was taking time, and I don't remember the it was in a set interval, but it was taking time at least every couple weeks for us to go to lunch. And have a 
rather extended lunch. It wasn't, you know, four hour, two martini lunch, but we'd have maybe an hour and a half. And one martini. Maybe one. <laughs> um, what, and, and oh, having, having my wife and I over to his house, uh, Hope would cook us a nice dinner and we'd have a meal together or we'd go and eat at, you know, a couple of restaurants we liked, you know, that we'd, we'd go together as, as, as couples, which was really important because I was rather newly married at that point. I'd, I'd been, probably been married seven, eight years. And, uh, you know, he's about 15 years ahead of me. Uh, so he was helping me in those things that are very practical just by modeling a healthy marriage. And this would have been, you know, true for all students, but, uh, just, I took advantage of it a lot. Having an open door when he was in office for office hours and just being able to go in and really talk about anything. It, it, it could have been that day, a spiritual struggle. It could have been that day, some issue in a class that I was just totally lost on that. I just needed him to unpack for me. So the whole gamut, but just mm. being available for those conversations mm. and he, you know, those office hours are open to any student, but I didn't have to stand in line. Most students weren't taking advantage of that. I'm like, why isn't there a line out the, you know, to the parking lot? So, yeah. 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 So we jumped from you being in college, working with this, this campus ministry to all of a sudden being mentored by JP Moreland while going to school and learning. And you just mentioned you newly married, relatively newly married, talked about your wife and how'd you meet? What were those early years like? <laughs> There's actually a Holy Smokes connection to that. Oh, Long really? before Holy Smokes existed, 1982. Okay. Spring of 1982. So um, uh, one of the things that for me was helpful in my early days as a Christian was I was in the tail end of the Christian rock beginnings, right? Well, there's Larry Norman or uh, Randy Stonehill or Phil Keggy, Keith Green, Amy Grant's my age. I remember seeing her up uh, uh, at Ohio State, about 30 of us in a room with her and just had her acoustic guitar, just playing a little concert. But uh, one of the, the groups that I loved was Second Chapter of Acts. And uh, they were playing downtown Cincinnati at the music hall, which is just a beautiful venue. I'd been there for some, you know, other events. I, I, I love the venue. And, uh, so I, I wanted to go and a friend of mine had a car uh, at our university. We couldn't have cars unless you're from that town and she happened to be from Oxford. So she had a car. So she took a bunch of us down there. She invited my wife to be also. Yeah. And, um, and all the way down to, the music hall. It's about a 45 minute drive. I'm thinking, how do I sit next to this girl at the concert? I want to sit next to her. Her name's Lori, but I can't make it obvious. I got to figure this out. So we get down there and, uh, we, we go to the ticket booth and it's a free will offering concert. So you didn't buy tickets ahead of time. They were just given out, but it was first come first serve and they were out of tickets. So now we've gone all the way down there. We can't even get in. And the atrium is packed. They haven't opened the, the doors for seating. So it's just a sea of people. So we're standing there dejected. I see across the heads, I'm tall. And so I was seeing across all these folks to this guy on the other side of the atrium who I had known. He was a, a, another uh, 
a guy I'd known um, there at, at Miami, and he made his way over to us. And he's talking about how great it's going to be to see the concert. And we're like, yeah, we're not getting in. He said, I got extra tickets. I'm like, there's seven of us. We don't want to, you know, leave some behind. I've got exactly seven tickets. I said, you're kidding me. No, here they are. Yeah. And, and as he handed it to me, I'm thinking, okay, now I can figure this out. I can give her one next to me. But then they opened the doors and they, they announced seating and I didn't have time. I had to fan them out and everybody grabbed a ticket. Yeah. Just like in a split second. And they ushered us up to our seats. We had like the best seats in the house. Balcony front, you know, front row was, was Lori and me. We're sitting right there. It's only two, two all the way up. So it's yeah. she and me. So it was history from <laughs> that was that was a start. So we dated through the rest of college. She was a year ahead of me. She graduated and uh, got married uh, actually halfway through my senior year. And yeah, kids. It's been great. Four four kids. First two daughters, thirty three and thirty one, and two sons who are about eleven years behind. So twenty three now and twenty one. So uh, it was grad school in the middle. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. What'd you do after grad school? Where'd you go? So as I was getting ready to go out to Talbot to do the MA philosophy and ethics under GP, I had an experience that God used to redirect me from student ministry to faculty ministry. And mm. it wasn't the only time this happened, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And in summary, I, um, I met this freshman who was really sharp mm -hmm. and uh, he was very mature in his faith and he was a big gregarious, just kind of a natural born leader. And he was so excited to be on campus to have a ministry to his dorm mates and classmates and grow in his faith and had been, you know, raised in a Christian home, came to faith at an early age, had been really led as a youth group, all, you know, amazing maturity that I had just rarely seen in freshmen. That six weeks he comes to me and says, Hey, I'm out. I don't believe this stuff anymore. I'm, what? Done, with, I'm done with Christianity. Really? Yeah. I said, why? He said, well, you know, it doesn't take too long for a person with any brains to figure out that if everybody who knows something here thinks Christianity is silly, it's not worth my life. He said, all my professors have made it clear that you grow out of this stuff when you actually come to college and think about things a little bit. So I'm done. And this, this was a really solid kid that any, uh, you know, anybody would look at and say, that's how you do it. You help your son or your daughter grow in the faith and be prepared. Well, it just took six weeks after all that for him to just walk away, give it up. And, uh, and I actually had one of those experiences where I said something and then I didn't know I had said it or like, what, why did that just come out of my mouth? I said, um, I said, Mike, you're absolutely right. He looked at me and said, well, they don't pay you to say that. What do you mean? You're supposed to yeah. tell me no. I said, no, that's what the apostle Paul said, that if Christ has not been raised, we more than anyone are to be pitied. So yeah, if this is, if this is not true, you run fast the other way and I'm running with you. I said, however, if it is true, if Christ actually is who he claimed to be and raised from the dead, then it's worth your life and mine, right? He said, well, yeah, that would logically follow, but he's not. I said, fair enough. That's, that, that seems to be the question. 
what would you think about us reading a book together that gives reasons to believe he actually is God? And if after we read that together, you still are convinced he's not, you get my blessing to be done. He said, I'll call your bluff. Let's do it. And uh, I thought, what are we going to read that'll actually challenge him? There's a lot of apologetic books out there that quite frankly are not worth the paper they're printed on. They're superficial. They are not argued well. They are written by folks who haven't done adequate training. And that would have been the death knell for him. So I chose a book by my developing mentor, J.P. Moreland, before I went to study with him, but I'd have a, had a few classes with him in the summers. Yeah. Uh, a book called Scaling the Secular City. And it was... Um, Pretty rigorous defense of Christianity. In fact, I probably understood 30, 40% of it at that time. And I was honest. I said, I don't, I don't understand all this, but here, here, here's the best I, I got for you. Yeah. So we read that through chapter by chapter, section by section, talked it through, got to the chapter in the, on the resurrection. Gosh, that was probably six months down the road, every week in the student union meeting. And he looked up and he said, Wallace? I always use my last name. I was yeah. never Stan. He said, Wallace? this is true. This Jesus is really God. I'm in. And I was like, wow, praise be to God. Wow. But then the Lord actually spoke to me and he said, how many more mics have been influenced by their professors that you'll never get to meet with and spend six months every week walking them back to the faith. Mm. And somebody ought to be ministering to the professors on this campus and helping those who are believers be able to articulate their faith. Mm -hmm. And those who aren't believers to think about the same things, that maybe this is true. And by the way, I'd had that experience as a freshman at Miami. There was one Christian professor, not in my department, he was a history professor, Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, who everybody on campus knew was a Christian. And he was a leading professor, top scholar on campus. And so when I was having... I had some pretty antagonistic professors my freshman year who were saying, this is silly, give it up. Don't believe this stuff. I'm thinking, well, Dr. Y believes this stuff and he's as good as you are. So I'm going to go talk to him and kind of see why he thinks this stuff's worth believing. So he helped me my freshman year. And in the same way, the guy kind of spoke to me that there needs to be Dr. Wise in every campus in the, in, in the country. Now my vision is the world. And uh, that was part of the shift to, okay, I, should, I, I need to get more training, go out and do the MA Phil with JP, but do it with an eye more toward after I finish going into faculty ministry, because there's so many in student ministry, but there's very few in faculty ministry. So that mm. was the, kind of the missional shift for me, the honing of my call to that, that, that group of folks. Talk about faculty ministry, because like you said, lots of people are in it and everyone knows about student ministry. But I've, until I met you, I had never heard anything about faculty mm. ministry. Mm -hmm. And so talk about the, the, the lay of the land in terms of what ministries are out there. What, what are they doing? What are you doing with, with the organization that you're at? Paint the picture for the listener. Sure. Sure. That's a great question. So faculty ministry is essentially how do we 
in the language of Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of ministry in the academic context. So the saints he's called to the university to be mm-hmm. not passer-throughs, students, but residents, people who live, move, and have their being there, faculty, who are called to that place to have a redemptive influence, how are they equipped for the work of ministry? Now, that doesn't mean they become little campus ministers and they do a little bit of their academic stuff and then they go out and do all kinds of other stuff. No. How do they, in the, in the context of their teaching, teach in a way that evidences Christ? How do they, in the context of office hours with students, engage students in a way that might help them come to faith, but might be very pre-evangelistic, just helping them get to the point where they can, can start to process the gospel? Uh, how do they, in their research and their publishing, bring the Christian perspective into astrophysics or psychology or educational theory or what have you? What does that look like? And how, how are some of us called to equip the saints in the academic context for the work of ministry? Okay. And because you don't subscribe to a sacred secular divide, yeah. the work of ministry is whatever we're doing. Whatever we are doing, I would assume you, you're, you're kind of putting it in we're living our life as a ministry. Interesting you say that. That's, that is a theological, or, you know, theological and miss, missional divide among faculty ministries. There are some who, who do think, and I alluded to it earlier, it's not my view, but there are, are, yeah. are, are some ministries that think, well, really what your ministry is is having a Bible in your desk and sharing the gospel with every student you meet. Somebody says, the long game is, is, is the better approach sometimes. Sometimes you burn bridges that way. Sometimes you get fired that, or don't get tenure that way. But a lot of ministries have more the approach of um, how do I, in everything I do and say, evidence Christ, whether it is serving well on a committee and not grumbling about that to my colleagues or doing my research in a way. Well, give an example. One professor I know does a lot of research and a lot of publishing, but he always lets his grad students who are doing the research with him get top billing. So even though he does a lot of the, 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 the real heavy lifting, he serves them by letting mm, them that's beautiful. be the ones who really are that is promoted and lifted up. Yeah, yeah. It's a servant. It's a servant attitude. Yeah. Or I know one professor who, Though he is a very senior scholar, well, I'll name names, because uh, uh, he's a paradigm case of what a Christian scholar looks like. Ken Elzinga, economist at the University of Virginia. Okay. I've interviewed him on my podcast, uh, College Faith. So if you want to link to that, yes. he does a great job of sharing what it looks like to be a missional Christian professor. But he's, he's such a senior scholar, he does not have to teach the intro level Econ 101 class anymore. But he still does. And by the way, it's the most popular class on campus. But he still does because it gives him a chance to minister to students in in multiple ways. He uses biblical examples when they're appropriate to illustrate economic principles that he's teaching. When his students come to his office, he always asks them as they're ready to leave, can I pray for you? He said, I've never had a student say no. Atheist, Hindu, Muslim, you name it, please. Yeah. And then can I pray for something in particular? Yes. And then he says, students start coming back to my office with things that really aren't that big a deal cause, just because they want me to pray for them some more or yeah. talk more about spiritual things. Yeah. So, yeah, it's how do, how do you evidence Christ, live that out in appropriate ways in all you do as yeah. a professor? 
So talk about, how long have you been doing this? Well, I started faculty ministry in 91, so whatever that is. 32 years. 32 years, yeah. 32 years. So in the 32 years you've been doing this, how have you seen things shift? Because we were talking last night over at Derek's place, and there's some exciting stuff. It, re it really feels like there, there are lots of things that people don't know the general public within the church doesn't know about what what you are seeing in your day to day and have seen evolve over the last 32 years. Sure. Yeah. The, the example that I was talking about last night is in my field in philosophy. So I'll share that. Yeah. Which is is, is happening in other disciplines. And I don't want to oversell this. It's still you still have a lot of ground to make. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done. But uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s philosophy as a discipline became dominated by atheists. So if, if you're in a philosophy program, you're reading atheists, studying under atheists, it's, you know, it's, that's just the party line. And in the fifties, a group of folks who are young believers decide out of a Christian denomination that unlike a lot of denominations did not devalue the life of the mind the Christian Reformed Church, which is not my denomination, I'm not CRC, yeah. have huge respect for CRC because they have always understood that it's important to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yeah. not get somehow the mind taken out of the equation. So these young missional men and women decided to go do PhDs in philosophy and start to engage these ideas from a Christian perspective. Well, they got top tier degrees and went off to teach at some pretty important places and started writing some pretty important things that brought the Christian perspective back into the conversation. And I'll give you one example. Okay. Uh, for probably the, the, the better half of the 20th century, there was one argument that everyone said that proves that God doesn't exist. It's what's called the logical problem of evil. It's logically impossible for God to exist and evil exist and evil exists. So there's no possible way God could exist. Now that's not quite technically the way it's framed, but that's, that's just kind of, a, you know, real quick summary of yeah. the logical problem, problem of evil. And so Alvin Plantinga was one of these young scholars, now PhD teaching and researching, and he went to work on that problem. And he wrote a book uh, entitled God, Freedom and Evil, where he basically took it head on and showed that the argument doesn't work. And as a result, Atheists stopped using that argument against <laughs> God. And today you will not hear somebody argue, and I'm sure there's exceptions, but you won't hear somebody argue God doesn't exist based on the logical problem of evil. Now there's another, another form of the problem of evil called the existential problem of evil, still in play. But the logical problem of evil is off the table. That's, that's huge because all of a sudden it opened conceptual space for people to say, okay, there's a possibility God actually exists. I could consider this. Yeah. And that's just one example. Uh, that was happening, you know, in the work of Nick Waltersdorf at Yale and Dallas Willard, who was at USC and um, Robert and Marilyn, Marilyn Adams and on and on and on. And they have spawned a second, third, and now into a fourth generation of Christian scholars who are serious top flight philosophers engaging the discipline from a Christian perspective. So much so that a few years ago, a atheist professor of philosophy named Quentin Smith, who was at Western Michigan University, wrote an article in Philo. Philo is an academic journal in philosophy 
from the atheist perspective. So that's where a lot, you know a lot of these articles be published by people who are who are who are trying to promote an atheist view of this or that or the other. And his article basically said, "What happened here? <laughs> we had our discipline summed up, nailed down, taken care of, and here we find ourselves." with, I think he said, a quarter to a third of the practicing philosophers in our universities in our country who are Christians. This is a problem we got to deal with. So the fact that he's actually realizing it means that there's some traction here. So much so also that uh, I've had conversations with uh, a a Christian historian, Christian sociologist, and others who've, who've said, man, if that can happen in philosophy, that can happen in my discipline. And we're seeing Christians go into these disciplines as well, literature, education. And I'm thinking of people in these fields who are Christians working to engage the main ideas in those fields from a biblical worldview and bring goodness, truth, and beauty into the discussion by the biblical principles that in some senses are at the foundation of the discipline, but have been forgotten or excluded. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time. I like, a, I like the fact that you added beauty to that, that three that you just said, goodness, truth, and beauty. Well, those are Aristotle's trans- transcendentals. Okay. Um, what he uh, said are the properties true of all things, though things can have more or less. Uh, but all things, in, to some degree, have goodness, truth, and beauty. And our job, and Christians, through Aquinas, thinking about this and doing some nuancing, uh, have, have framed our work in the world as redeeming all things in those ways, fostering goodness, truth, and beauty in all things. Oh, I've never heard that. That's beautiful. Yeah. There's another watershed moment. Okay. Uh, and I'll mention this, unless I'm yeah. going on too long. No. Keep going. Okay. Keep this going. is a great story. People don't know this. This is a great, I love telling this story. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a Christian historian, speaking of historians, a Christian historian, now retired, emeritus professor, Notre Dame, named George Marsden. And uh, he wrote a book, I think, with Oxford University Press a number of years ago called The Soul of the American University. The subtitle was something like From Protestant Establishment to Established Nonbelief. So he took 10 universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, uh, Penn, I think, and some others, and sort of trace their history of secularization. Okay. Very well-researched books. He's a top flight historian. It's really well done. But he added at the end of the book, a postscript, which is more his musing. So it wasn't doing history. Uh, he's stepping out of his role as a historian and just kind of musing on the future of higher education. And in this, he basically says the hope of the university is for Christian scholars to get a seat at the table again, not to be dominant, not to be the only voice. No, it's a pluralistic university, Mm -hmm. but one of the voices ought to be the Christian voice at the table in the conversation. Well, the trade journal in higher education, all education that all professors would, would, would receive is the Chronicle of Higher Education. Okay. And so the Chronicle began publishing these letters to the editor about how outrageous this idea was. This is outrageous. Are you kidding me? A Christian voice at the table? How outrageous. I'm outraged. 
I'm using that word a lot because then he wrote a, a, a follow-up book and he named that book, The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship. I think OUP published that as well, Oxford University Press. And what he did is he took all of those objections that scholars had raised against this idea that they called outrageous, and he answered each of those in each chapter, one of those objections, and basically made the case that no, the hope of the university is Christian professors being in the conversation. And it was a tour de force. It's, I mean, it's, it's probably, gosh, 30 plus years now since it came out. And it's still, I mean, I, I use it regularly in my ministry, have professors read it, work through it. You know, we'll do the book study of it, kind of work through the, the arguments, but it just makes the case that this is what, this is what the pluralistic university ought to be about. A place, truth, beauty, and justice are, are pursued and promulgated. And the Christian voice is part of that, if not um, a central part of that. So uh, all, all that to say that has spurred on a whole generation. Now, actually, we're into the second generation of Christians saying, yeah, there is a place for us at the university. And it's not that Christian university over there that really mostly started as Christians left the public university. But no, we have a place in the public university to serve Christ, to be light and truth. And uh, it's exciting. Talk about what's difficult for those professors. Yes. Some of their struggles. Yes. And so. Because um, I don't want to paint a too rosy of a picture. I'm because glad you it's, went there. Because. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So glad you went there. And I, and I should say, I'm speaking in the U.S. context, which I worked in from 92 to 2010. 2010, I uh, accepted a position with global scholars to work in the global context. Yeah. So now I'd say 90% of my work is outside the U.S., whether okay. it's China or throughout Africa, yeah. Europe, South America, you know. So the answer has different nuances. I think there's let's, some Let's themes, talk about both because our, our, our audience isn't only okay. American. Well, perfect. So... There's a truth and an error to anything. Now, we don't always know what that is, but if I say it's raining now, it's either true or false. There's a, you know, that claim is either true or false. And the truth can be known a number of ways. It might be something that is known through what's called special revelation that God has revealed in the scripture, like Jesus is God. Uh, it might be something that's discovered through what's called general revelation what we learn through physics and psychology and every discipline in the university, which is, is, is the second book of Revelation, sometimes it's called. It's what God's revealed through the created order. The Psalm 91, the heavens declare the glories of God. We can know things just by studying. You know, consider the ant in Proverbs, right? These things we can learn just by studying God's creation. And so there's truth to be found through those two ways, special revelation, general revelation, but there are errors also to be found. And I think there are three main categories of error, if you will. There's secularism. In the university, there'd be other ones, but the main ones in the university. Secularism, which dominates the West. There'd be a radical uh, Islamic thought, which dominates Middle Eastern universities. And there'd be Marxist thought, which dominates a lot, of, you know, whether it's China or throughout um, some countries in South America, some countries in Africa would dominate that thought. So... With a, without going into a lot of nuance and caveats, which really are important 
for the next level. Those would be the three, three areas of error. So it depends on where the professor teaches uh, as to where the challenges will probably come from, whether, whether it's the, 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 the radical enlightenment secularism in the West or the others. So having said that, there's some commonalities, right? There's a tendency to not say the university ought to have what's called a principled pluralism which is the vision initially for a university where it's a pluralism where everybody gets a seat at the table, many voices, but it's principled in that you let others have their say, you respect those you disagree with. It's principled and it's not uh, rejecting your ideas a priori. Uh, And so that is the ideal that's so often not the reality. And so that's the challenge a lot of Christian professors face in not being able to actually be in that conversation and be respected and be able to speak truth that hopefully in the right way. I mean, there's, you know, first Peter three fifteen always make a defense with gentleness and respect. So that's in play too, but nonetheless, um, not the case. Now, let me, let me, let me yeah. tell you a story yeah. of how this, how this can play out in a positive way. A professor that we work closely with, a U.S. national who went to Europe to a, a, a pretty top-flight university uh, in the sciences. Yes. Uh, when he showed up, and he's an evangelist at heart, he, he's a top-flight scientist, wanted to be able to, to, to do his work in, in his field, but also to share the gospel with students and engage them in, in, you know, in gospel conversations. Well, his first day on campus, his department chair takes him around campus to show him, you know, campus and kind of orient him. And he, and he said, um, let me give the lay of the land here. Here, here's kind of how it works. We're thrilled to have you here, you know, set up your lab, but, uh, you know, kind of want you to know some of the do's and don'ts. If you like to drink strong drink and you do so before coming to class and you come to class drunk, I don't care. I've done it. Everybody in the department's done it. It just happens. No worries. Uh, if you find some of your grad students attractive, you want to sleep with a few of them, I, I don't care. No, no worries for, for me, as long as you're doing your work. I do know you're a, you're a, you're a Christian, and, and, and so if you do say anything about that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to fire you and send you home next, next flight out. That's the way it's going to go, okay? So that's kind of the ground rules. Yeah. Well, he was devastated because, of course, you know, he's wanting to do great work in his field, but he's also wanting to talk about Christ. Well, he did the right thing. He, he played the long game. He hunkered down. He set up his lab. He developed funding. He did all the things that checked the boxes for the university. Millions of dollars in research funding. Dozens of patents coming out of his lab. Dozens of PhD students he graduated who are going into top tier universities in that field in other places, which raises the stature of his university for producing that caliber of PhD. Well, fast forward to when I was having the conversation with him six years later, he said, guess what? I can say anything I want to about anybody about Christ. In fact, I do public lectures on faith and science and my department chair shows up. And I talk about Jesus because they know I'm serious about my scholarship and exactly. I'm doing what the university wants me to exactly. do. Exactly. And I'm like, exactly. You demand. Do your job well. Yeah. 
you demand and, it. And everything, exactly. do, do your job not just well, do it excellently. Yeah. yeah. And those pressures, most of the time, will disappear. Yeah, and that most of the time is important because I could tell other stories of yes. those who did excellent work, but researched and published on something that wasn't popular, was against certain views of that field, and they didn't make tenure. It happens. So it's a mixed bag, but at the end of the day, it comes down to what any of us have to do. Be wise as serpents and Gentle innocent of doves, and, and there's no template. Yep. Yep. The Holy Spirit leads. Yes. You do your best yes. and trust that the Lord will use it for his glory. Mm. And it might mean you're martyred on the, 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 the hill of not getting tenure and having to move on. And if that's it, or actually, if you're in a Muslim country, if it means something worse, maybe if that's what the Lord's called you to. So the point is being a faithful steward of the resources in the case of academics, their intellectual capacity and their academic pedigree to the glory of God. How do people find global scholars and if their heart is so pricked, donate? So uh, your website is global-scholars.org. And um, yeah, all the information's there, you know. Because I, I, I feel like this is something really important that I had no idea about, and it's beautiful. Well, and our vision is that one day, and it, you know, it won't be in my tenure, but one day every student in the world heads off to university and has a Dr. Y, like I had when I was a freshman, has a Christian professor on campus, maybe doesn't take classes from him or her, but knows there's a Christian professor here who believes this, and I can talk to when I need to, is, is somebody who can encourage me in my faith, can answer my questions, yeah. can mentor me maybe if, if the, the Lord wills. Like JP did to you. Exactly. And, and we estimate there are 750,000 Christian professors worldwide. If just a fraction of them are serious about their faith in the way some of these people I've mentioned as examples are, that vision could become a reality at some point. Hmm. And that's, that's what we want to see happen. As well as it permeate the academic discussion so that just like in philosophy, you cannot go through a course of study in that field without reading serious Christian philosophers who are articulating hmm. a biblical vision in the things you're reading. We want to see that happen in every academic discipline. Not there. And again, not the only voice. We, we think the best arguments from other perspectives ought to be on the table too. Because at the end of the day, like is popular to say in other contexts, truth wins. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if, if the best arguments from a biblical worldview are put up against the best arguments from a secularist worldview, then the biblical perspective is going to win the day if it's argued fairly. But that's the big if sometimes, if uh, the hearing is had for mm -hmm. the biblical worldview. But that's our vision, that that happens in every discipline. Now, at the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned, I mentioned that you have a book coming out and I was going to hold this. I'm calling it an audible right now. Because this is so damn good <laughs> that this has to go into the podcast feed now. So Stan, you are currently working on a book and it's scheduled to be released sometime. I think you said late spring, late spring, 24. That's right. And so let's talk about that just kind of as a general overview. And then as you submit that final manuscript and if your publisher isn't doing the audiobook for you and you're doing your audiobook with me, hint, 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 wink, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I want to bring you back on. 
Now, I, I never do them over Zoom, and I'm going to try. I've done two in the history of this podcast over Zoom. I don't like it. I like it in person way better. But you talked about that book last night, and this is so important that I am willing, if, there's, if you're not coming back here to Colorado Springs before late spring, that we'll do it over Zoom and we'll, we'll kind of do something. We'll release that right when your book comes out so that way we can talk in depth okay. about it, me having read it or listened to it. Okay. But talk about it as as kind of an overview because I freaking love the title. Yeah, well, absolutely love thanks. Well, the working title. The, the working, working title. title right we'll see now. the publisher decides. But uh, yeah, so um, let me let me tie it before giving the title. Tie it to what we were just talking about because in my field, what I find now I'm speaking as a philosopher, not a ministry leader, because I wear both hats. So in my academic work as a philosopher, again, I'm not a in an academic post, that's not been my call, but I do try to do some research, writing, teaching when I can. So wearing that hat, uh, I find that there are issues that are being discussed, uh, including by Christians. This isn't just a broad statement, but including Christians where there are resources from both theology and philosophy they are not aware of. And so they are, for one reason or another, either because they're unaware or they're intentionally not integrating those, but I, I, I prefer to think they're just not aware of, of a, a rich treasure trove of biblical and philosophical data that can help integrate and inform and fill out issues in their field, whatever the field is. So this book is on one of those issues. Uh, the working title is, Have We Lost Our Minds? Neuroscience, Neurotheology, the soul and human flourishing. And what's happening is there's a lot of really interesting and good research being done in neuroscience, which is learning a lot about the brain and how it works. All secularists would say, that's all you are. You are just a brain. There is no immaterial dimension to you. As Christians, we would say, no, we do have a soul. And that's, that's an important dimension. But there is a growing group of what are called neurotheologians who are, who are believers. I think they're dear brothers and sisters. I think they have great hearts. They want to serve the kingdom. They want to serve, whether they're psychiatrists or Christian counselors, they want to serve their clients. But they're unaware of the history of both biblical engagement uh, on questions about what we are, yeah, as well as the philosophical reflection that's gone on about this topic since the time of Plato. And so they're making some pretty significant errors that have a lot of practical implications. And the way I try to summarize it in introduction is, is, is this. Um, if I take a tulip and plant it in my backyard at a depth of, and I'm not a gardener, so I'm kind of making this up, but I, Let's, let's say at a, a depth of one foot and I water it and I give it certain nutrients, it will flourish because that's what tulips do. If they're in that environment, they're going to grow. If I take my dog and plant it one foot deep and water it every day and put some sprinkled nutrients on it, it's not going to flourish. Quite the opposite. It's going to die. Now, why is that? Well, it's because dogs and tulips are different types of things. And understanding what they are drives how they flourish. 
So if our end game is human flourishing, the prior question is, well, what are we to start with? If we're primarily or exclusively physical things, then we flourish by understanding more of our physiology, in this case, neurophysiology and, and applications thereof. If we're primarily spiritual things or combinations of spirit, a soul and a body, then our flourishing takes on a different approach. And that's where the pay dirt is. I think that the works being done by Christian neurotheologians is really harming the church in terms of thinking about human flourishing, spiritual formation, mm. cultural engagement, biomedical ethics, a whole range of issues. So that's, that's where the book will end is, okay, so what are the implications? But I'm going to go through, you know, kind of what the assumptions are, where some of those assumptions have gone wrong. How do we understand what we are from a biblical and philosophical point of view? Uh, and then apply it to the set of issues. Hmm. So how do people sign up for your email list so that way they can be alerted when it's ready for pre-order on Amazon or through you? The best way to do that is subscribe to one or both of my podcasts because we'll promote it heavily through those. One is College Faith and one is Thinking Christianly that I do with JP. Uh, they're both monthly podcasts and those are both available through my website, stanwallace.org. So that's probably the easiest way. Say it again. College faith, college faith. And talk about that. Sure. So, um, over the years, having been in the campus ministry space, I've had parents come up to me whose kids are going off to college and how can I help my son or my daughter flourish? Which is something uh, that you did last night when my son, Matthew, was hanging out with us over at Derek's house. You, you know, had conversations had, with both him and his best friend, Jeremiah. Conversation, yeah. I love those conversations. And, you know, and sometimes it's, how do I flourish spiritually? Especially if they're going to a, a, a pluralistic university. I love that you didn't say secular. Yeah, and I, 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 I try not to because that. that means something different. Yeah. yeah. So, um uh, if they're going to a pluralistic university or um, how do I flourish academically no matter where I'm going? Great questions. And I've got some thoughts on those things. I mean, I've been around the block and I've done this a little while, but there's always somebody I think, boy, so-and-so really could answer that question. That's a good question. And I, I'd love you to meet so-and-so. He or she really ooh, could deliver the goods. So I decided a couple, three years ago, I don't know, maybe more to start interviewing all those people on this College Faith Podcast and ask all the questions that parents are asking me or students like your son are asking as they're getting ready to go to college or they're in college and they're struggling. So, you know, I'm doing a series now on the different disciplines. If I, if I want to go study in the hard sciences, what should I be thinking about? Well, I, inter I interviewed Bob Kaida, the director of the Plasma Physics Lab at Princeton. Serious believer, top-tier research university, knows his stuff. He had great things to say for somebody who's thinking about, maybe I want to go study physics. Great. That's helpful. And I've done one on studying in the arts, got one coming up in, in, in business. And so those are the kind of things we deal with on that, as well as I did one on cults on campus, how to recognize and avoid them. <laughs> uh, did on one on calling we were talking about last night. How do I think about God's calling in my life and what major I ought to choose in light of that? Well, Gordon Smith wrote a fabulous book on that called Courage and Calling. So I interviewed Gordon. And he shared the essence of what's in his book. So uh, that's that podcast. Um, and then the other one with JP other, is Thinking Christianly. Thinking Christianly. And, and to be honest, um, 
it's a dialogue we have, but I really did it because he needs to be exposed to this younger generation. I mean, he's written, I don't know how many very important books, both at academic levels, but at more popular levels. But um, he's not of the generation that does podcasts or that does Facebook or Instagram or, you know, whatever. So he's just not out. People don't know him as well. And, uh, but his, his thoughts are so helpful. Again, he's protege of Dallas Willard in his own right was just named a few years ago, one of the top 50 living philosophers and not just Christian philosophers, wow. living philosophers. Wow. So he's, he's, he's a player, but, uh, the, the folks who listen to podcasts are never going to run into him. And so I thought, I just want a way for them to hear him and his heart as well as his intellect. They're both amazing. And it just comes through in, in how he engages issues. So we, with a host who's a, a younger, very, very thoughtful woman named Jordan Plank, uh, engage issues that we ought to, as Christians, be thinking about from a biblical worldview. Mm. Yeah. Thinking Christianly. Thinking Christianly. And... And college faith. College faith. Uh -huh. So subscribe, check them out. <laughs> Thank you. Check them out. Thank you. So Stan Wallace, let's get to rapid fire questions. Okay. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Rapid fire. Here. How's that stick treating you? Just, just fine, my friend. Just fine. I've let her go out a few too too many times because I got, got <laughs> it, talking. Well, it happened to me when Kay and Carl interviewed me. Mm. When did you first try cigars or pipe? When did I first try? Uh, there was there was one of my staff when I was with with a, a ministry uh, a while ago uh, who was a connoisseur, and uh, we needed to have a, an important conversation. And he said, why don't we have it over a cigar? Sometimes that makes the conversations go better. I thought, all right, let's, let's, let's try that. And uh, I was hooked. What year was that? Approximately. Uh, 1998. Okay, cool. You ever done pipe? Yeah, I've got a few pipes. What do you prefer, Absolutely. cigars or pipe? Cigars. I mean, I get talking and let my cigar go out. You can imagine how it is with me in a pipe. <laughs> it's always out. <laughs> it takes too much work. What's the most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? You know, I probably my favorite, and it's not an expensive cigar. I don't, okay. I don't have the palate to pick up the finer nuances, so it's not worth it for me to buy a Davidoff. So I love Oliva Series V, and uh, I mean it's not you know, um, which I was smoking stick. last night. You were. I was. 
I was a little bit jealous, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's probably the most expensive stick, and it's not an expensive stick, but, uh, yeah. So I would assume then that's the answer to the next question. What's the best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar you smoked? I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? We have a little cigar bar about uh, two exits west of me in western southwestern KC. It's the retired chief of the fire department in this little town just east of my, I'm actually in Olathe and it's in DeSoto, okay. just yeah. west. And yeah. uh, he used to love uh, sitting out with the firemen after runs, having a cigar and having conversations. So he retired and opened his little, his little shop. It's called Ritter's Cigar Company. Uh, it's all fire themed, including the name. And uh, it, it just, he and his wife run it. It's a great place. It's a little more small town. Uh, just got a just got a nice ambiance and um, great prices and it's all good. Next time I'm out there in Overland Park, let's get together over there. Let's do, yeah. And of course, Outlaw is there. And oh I, yeah, I love Outlaw and I've been there a lot, but it's you know, yeah. a very different yeah. vibe. Oh yeah, than uh, than Ritter's. Last so. time when uh, we do a yearly guys trip with my former pastor and uh, a bunch of guys from our that were around our church and. Our last last year in November, we went to the Kansas City Chiefs game, and we also went to a Mavericks hockey game over the nice, weekend. Nice, we, nice. And the last day that we were there before we flew out, we stopped at Outlaw in sure. Overland Park. Sure. I wanted to get to the one in Kansas City because I've heard well, that's that's that's, a, that's a, unbelievable. Yeah, I've, I've heard that's that one's just an incredible lounge. Yes. So, uh, favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Uh, Imperial Stout. I am. Uh, very partial to uh, dragon's milk, or and you'll find this interesting. Uh, I don't like it for the name, but the name doesn't hurt. Three philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Marx, Spinoza, and uh, I don't know who the third is. It's uh, there on the, the logo, but most, it's just a great stout. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. Good question. A homicide detective retired kck mm. who frequents ritters who uh just got some amazing stories of uh, his time on the uh on the force and uh he's a believer and just uh you know his sense of bringing good out of horror mm. and uh doing his work in a way that that mm. honors the lord most memorable cigar or pipe experience sitting on the back porch with jp mm. talking about everything and anything uh and enjoying his favorite cigar which i uh, was going over his house so i picked up a couple for us he loves leafs you know leaf with the, yeah, the wrapper oscar. and all oscar yeah uh yeah. loves the oscar leaf so, by oscar uh i i think it's the only time i had that so i don't i don't know the stick that well but uh, it was just it was a rich time uh you know we're just at that point in our relationship i mean he's been my mentor for since 87 i took the first class with him and so we just got a long history and we can talk really honestly about mm. really really deep things mm. personally as well as i'm interested in the same issues he is philosophically so we have good conversations on to the non-cigar rapid fire questions <laughs> marvel or dc or I neither i don't do comic strips i'm sorry i'm just not i'm not very into popular culture it's not that it's bad or wrong. I got a friend who just wrote a book on it. Love it. But I'm just 
It's not my world. Star Wars or Star Trek? Again? I'm not. If I had to pick, I'd say Star Wars because I've seen them and I haven't really ever seen Star Trek. So. Okay. Into sports at all? I love football. American football. Who's your team? You know, I've lived a few places, and it seems every time I moved to that place, they won the Super Bowl, so I picked them up. So I was in Milwaukee when Green Bay uh, went that. to the uh, I'm a cheesehead. Super Bowl. Born of course and raised you cheesehead. are. Of course you are. Mad town. Uh, yeah, I love the pack. as the far of years. Yeah. So that was great. Moved to Tampa Bay, and they won the Super Bowl the next year. Love the Bucks still. Of course, you know... I love the Bengals. Grew up in Cincy, even though until as of late we weren't that much to talk about. But loving life these 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 last few years, and then uh, we moved to Kansas City, and the Chiefs did not get the message that we were in town till five years later. But they finally realized we're in town, so they could win a Super Bowl too. So uh, you know, obviously a, a, a Chiefs fan. Favorite athlete when you were a kid? Favorite football player or even uh, athlete when you were a kid? Roger Staubach, quarterback okay. of the Dallas Cowboys. He was the man. And how about now? Who, who, who would you say is your favorite athlete of the last 20 years? Well, you know, I think that just switched because I just watched this Netflix series on quarterbacks. Yeah, where and, uh, Mariota and Mahomes and uh, who? The, Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins, yeah. I'm going to say Cousins. The man is a, an all-around, he, he loves the Lord, he is excellent at his craft, He's committed to his family. He's got his priorities right. He's, nice. I mean, it, 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 I'm, I'm so impressed with him after watching that series. What kind of music do you love? The early Christian rock, the Larry Norman, hmm. the, you know, uh, second chapter of Acts, yeah. that era, and uh, classic rock too, Rush, Kansas, Floyd, Love Pink Floyd. Um, that whole realm. And I, I realized that one of the reasons I love them is because all the groups that I love from that era were actually thinking about important things. They were doing philosophy before I was a philosopher. I mean, you think, <laughs> think about most of Floyd's songs. They're dealing with, I mean, what what is flourishing? What's the good life? What is, uh, I, I was just thinking about the machine the kid's looking at his future. It's just working in the factory the rest of his life. And that doesn't seem like flourishing, but that's all he's got. And that's his future. And is that the kind of society we want to create where there's no human flourishing and there's just production? And yeah, those are important questions to be thinking about. So you mentioned Pink Floyd. Have you ever had Comfortably Numb by I, Espinoza? All right, beautiful, beautiful. Those are great. Yeah, it's, it's my favorite dollar for dollar stick that I've got in my humidor. Favorite food? Oh, uh, it's got to be uh, smoked ribs. Mm. Yeah. Dogs, cats, neither or both? <clears throat> oh, it's it's dogs. Always been a dog guy. Had a big uh, collie uh, shepherd mix growing up. Um, so Do you have I a like favorite breed? Not, not really. Okay. No. Nickname growing up or in college? Uh, the... Uh, the staff worker who discipled me in college, he gave us all nicknames, and mine was Daniel. So to this Daniel. day, when I talk to him, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really last after college because I got in other circles, and you know. But uh, yeah, that's probably the only nickname I've ever had. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I have rode in parades, ten, twelve, and fifteen-foot unicycles. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is probably one of the most unique, unusual facts I've ever heard. That's awesome, dude. That is so freaking awesome. Favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible. Mm. Well, um, if if I'm going to define favorite, like boy, if I'm stuck on a desert island and only have these, uh, I, I'd probably have to say um, Victor Hugo's Les Mis because mm. it's such a deep study of both human flourishing and 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 the opposite mm. and you gotta gotta have plato's republic in there because he addresses all the big issues that are worth thinking about over and over and over there's one book that could be read ad infinitum and still outside the bible gain wisdom i'd have to go with the republic and then third can i put a trilogy in there yeah. can i package yeah, yeah. all right lewis's space trilogy Ah. Out, of, out of the silent planet, Paralandria, yeah. and um, uh, that hideous strength, which is such a, uh, uh, he's just so insightful, and every page is chock full of ahas for me. Name three things that you're thankful for at this point in your life. Oh, um, a marriage that uh, has sustained me through uh, some pretty rocky times. Mm. A Lord who sustained me as well through some pretty rocky times and friendships that have sustained me that really, really do lead to flourishing. Mm. That's beautiful. If you could be any animal, what would you be? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can't answer that question. Okay. There's a, there's a philosopher named Thomas Nagel. Yes. He wrote an article called What It's Like to Be a Bat. And his point is there's no way to know because there's something that's called private access uh, in, in philosophy of mind that we only know the contents of our own mental life. We, and we do know that, but we, I don't have access to your mental life. Now, I can assume by external, but I don't know what you're thinking. I have no idea what it's like to be something else. So I don't know what I'd like to be because I don't know what their mental lives are like. I have no idea. There's no way I can know. So I can't answer it. That's such a philosopher answer. That's so freaking <laughs> no, awesome. That's so freaking awesome. I was awesome. trying to come up with something to like make something up, but I got to say, I don't, I don't know. Are you an early riser, a night owl, or pretty normal? Well, I'm a night owl by design. In fact, my wife and I courted in the wee hours of the morning at this uh, little coffee shop on campus because we're both night owls. But, uh, you know, uh, the professional Work. life yeah. uh, makes one uh, more of a morning person. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? Well, it, it'd be where, where I can be with my kids and grandkids quickly. So, um, so that would be where I am. So let's take that off the table. Uh, it'd probably be Oak Ridge, Macedonia. Mm, describe uh, I it. Love Macedonia. Beautiful country. Small country, two million people. Um, I had the what? privilege of, of knowing a number of people in, in leadership there, and uh, they have a great vision for their country. But it's a beautiful, beautiful country uh, in terms of the landscape. There's mountains, there's beautiful pastoral valleys, there's vineyards all over. Oak Ridge is a uh, little city in the southwest corner on a pristine lake. Mm. that uh mm. is uh, it's, it's just it's like any postcard you can imagine that's the most beautiful lake mountains in the background um i just love it what's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness well, i told you my greatest weakness earlier i'm I, i'm way too independent 
and just have a, a, a struggle with, with authority. And I work on that. And it's a special discipline to be under authority and to do so thankfully and joyfully. Um, so I, I, I intentionally work on being formed in the image of Christ in that way because I know that I'm not. My strength, as, as others have told me, and I think that that's important because sometimes one thinks one has a strength and it actually isn't the case, but I've had a lot of feedback that it's, it's bringing together folks around a common vision and empowering them to excel and flourish and together work toward and reach that goal. And I love doing that. That's what I get to do with Global Scholars. So just in my sweet spot. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? JP. Yeah. Spiritually, intellectually, as a father, as a husband. Yeah. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Ulysses S. Grant. Ooh. Maybe because I just listened to a history podcast and just went through his life. But uh, who, by you know. many, for many years of his life, he wasn't. He was successful. not at all. Not. No. But once he found, he just happened. Once he got back into military service right. when the Civil War happened. That's right. He came alive. I, I remember listening to. Oh, geez, who wrote it? I think it was Ron Chernow. The, the Ulysses S. Grant biography, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it was so damn good. Yeah, it was, right. I never really studied him a whole lot. I just kind of just, I've always been a Civil War nerd, mm -hmm. but I never looked at okay. Grant's life yeah. in yeah. depth. I mean, I heard the overview of, you know, unsuccessful as a clerk, failed right. business, right. whatever, all that stuff. And then, and then hearing all of these scandals and stuff that was going on with, with his presidency, that's all I ever heard. But when I listened to that yes. biography, how intentional he was mm -hmm. in reconstruction. Mm -hmm. He took Lincoln's vision for reconstruction yes. and implemented it exactly. in a way that Andrew Johnson didn't. No, no. And that's right. future Republican presidents really didn't no, right. have the heart to exactly. do. Live by his convictions. Live by his convictions. And, and, and knew what he was called to do and did it with excellence to the best of his ability, ability, and that's success. And as a result, had a redemptive influence. Yes. Made a difference. And a big cigar guy, too. Much and to his detriment, yeah, ultimately. Yep, yep. <laughs> too much cigars. Too much, too much of any good thing, right? What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge? I like to do non-academic things. So much of my world, both working with academics and my own academic work, is related to the world of ideas. So probably anything that gets me out of that is helpful. It could be mowing the lawn. It could be going on a hike. It could be playing pool with my son who loves to do that with me. Uh, watching a football game. My wife and I have just gotten into biking. Mm. So anything that gets me out doing something in my incarnational being <laughs> beyond just thinking is really refreshing and rejuvenating. How do you want to be remembered? Someone who loved God and loved others well and promoted the good, the true, and the beautiful and human flourishing. Mm. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Well, it has been, and I've been in the orbit now for probably eight years, but it's been a place, one of the main places that I found people to have authentic conversations. You know, just 
guys who don't have a pretense, don't have an agenda, don't have a need to, you know, be the guy everybody's listening to or whatever, just guys coming together to, to, to be pretty authentic with one another. And that is, that's so rare as I'm sure you, you know. So that refreshes my soul because I feel like, you know, so the, 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 the great, great human needs, maybe greatest human needs are to know and be known. And it fosters that in a way that few other contexts or communities do not exclusively. I've been in some other communities and still am the foster that as well, but certainly the Holy Smokes community allows for that type of mm. connection mm. and fellowship in a, in a true sense of the word. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. People in history. Okay. Or living or deceased. Let's go in uh, reverse chronological order. Dallas Willard, because I uh, had a few times to interact with him and they were always uh, just uh, just unbelievable conversations. Mm. He just saw things in a different way, mm-hmm. a, a deeply Christ-formed way. Mm. And uh, I just came, came away changed. So uh, second, uh, C.S. Lewis, because mm-hmm. I don't think the man had a thought that wasn't revolutionary. <laughs> It's unbelievable the things I learned just from uh, from reading what he was thinking about. And uh, William Wilberforce. Because I'd just love to learn more about how he saw his lifelong calling to redeem, you know, the, the horrible practice of the British slave trade and actually saw that come to fruition. And it took him a long, him a long, long time. And, and, and how he stayed at it. And how, yeah. cause there's so much discouragement and there was so much against him so much in mean, the whole country or the whole yeah, British empire, e- economic system and yes. money and yes, political power. And yes. How do you stay at it that yeah. long in the face of that much opposition? Yeah. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I have a six pack of Imperial stout, <laughs> I'm bringing you a new one for you to try that's highly mm. recommended. Okay. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating yet another Christian professor who has rejected the sacred secular dichotomy and realized that her discipleship under Christ includes everything she does in the lab, in the library, in the classroom, in the office with students, in the conference room with colleagues and has really found ways to be the presence of Christ in that place. Mm. And that that's being repeated in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. Stan Wallace, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. This was so good. My pleasure. Fun to talk with you. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. 
We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.